This is David Eigen with the next edition of P5 Protocols. I feel blessed to have Dr. Dale Bredesen on this podcast today. He's the first doctor researcher I have met who has operationalized a program for the masses, delineated in his recent book, The End of Alzheimer's, and is building a business around it to ensure that the world has access. He has extensive data to back up his findings, so I truly believe it is worth your time. In the transcript, because the data is so dense, I have changed my format a bit to make it more readable and likely still failed. Bold and italics are background, underlined is treatment, and bold and underlined is strictly for emphasis. Dr. Bredesen's approach is programmatic. He looks at every possible thing he can find, culled from 30 years of research, and he doesn't simply look to help you get every edge you can get, but actually looks to eliminate the things that are getting in your way. It is very similar to the approach of Sidney Baker and Nancy O'Hara, who also seek to remove what is bad and add back what is good. Dr. Bredesen has automated what I am trying to do with P5 protocols, which is exactly this. Look at and analyze your condition as something that is multifactorial and correct for all. Perfect health is the goal. To me, it's the only goal. Because if not, you will fall well short of it. And then with age, look out below. And with that, here's my interview with Dr. Dale Bredesen. I am here with Dr. Dale Bredesen, uh, who has a, a new book out called The End of Alzheimer's and who practices what I'm a big believer in, uh, which is a protocol or a, what I would call an adaptable protocol that he's developed over many years has now over a thousand patients in it and hundreds of patients with longer term data that shows that he has been able to stop, uh, prevent, and in many cases, reverse uh, cognitive decline from basic dementia all the way through to Alzheimer's. And the book is entitled The End of Alzheimer's. And with that, uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Bredesen. Thanks very much, David. I really appreciate your having, uh, taking the time to be here. And um, as, as I said to you offline before, uh, in, in the original intro, I wanted to bring uh, you on or talk about you in my intro because you are the first person I've seen who's built a comprehensive protocol and put out there in your book, the tests and the way to approach and treat so that a doctor could pick it up and practice. Et cetera. So I'd love you to talk first about your approach, but you know how you evolved and how you got here, going all the way back to your your traditional training. Sure. So this came straight from the test tube. Um, I had a very classical training. I uh, graduated from Caltech. I worked at MIT with uh, Professor Mark Wrighton uh, and was interested in uh, basic chemistry and, and then uh, approaches to neurochemistry. And uh, then I uh, was a postdoctoral fellow in the lab of Nobel laureate Stanley Prusner. Um, and we've been interested for years, and my lab has been up for uh, now almost 30 years, in what actually drives neurodegeneration. Why is it that we get things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and Lou Gehrig's disease? Where do they come from? Why is it that people haven't understood them better? And you could argue that this has been the area of greatest biomedical failure. As they say, everybody knows a cancer survivor, no one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. And of course, the book describes uh, the first. 
And so what, what we started with was the idea that we would get to you know, a single drug, a single target. And what we found when we looked at the basic chemistry of this illness is that Alzheimer's disease doesn't come from one thing. And in fact, the surprise has been that what we call Alzheimer's disease is actually a protective response to three fundamentally different processes. Number one, chronic inflammation, whether it's from various pathogens like Lyme, like Borrelia from Lyme disease or like uh, herpes simplex type 1 or P. gingivalis from your mouth, uh, so forth and so on. Number two, uh, a trophic withdrawal. So you suddenly withdraw things like nerve growth factor or brain-derived neurotrophic factor or estradiol, pregnenolone. You go on and on and on. Vitamin D is one of the things. All these things, if you withdraw them especially rapidly, the response is essentially a downsizing of the neural network, which involves the pathology that we call Alzheimer's disease. And then the third thing, it turns out that the amyloid that you make in Alzheimer's is also a very good binder of many different toxins. So for example, if you want a brain to protect itself by making amyloid, then throw in some uh, mercury. Uh, that's a good way to do it. Uh, copper is another one. It binds copper. It binds uh, other metals like uh, iron. And uh, Professor Ashley Bush has shown this over many years. Um, that this is a very good binder. So those are the three major areas where your brain makes this response. And so unfortunately, people say, well, it's Alzheimer's disease and we don't know what causes it. But the reality is that what we look at as Alzheimer's is a response to insults that are upstream that can be measured, quantitated, identified, and addressed. Amazing. And and you started as a scientist and became a doctor. So you're not just on the back, you know, the, you're not, you're not just saying they're doing research, putting it out there. You are, you are on the front lines. Absolutely. Um, so, so how many people have been through and how many people are current? I believe you said there's over a thousand now on the protocol. Yes, so there are now over a thousand and that actually includes many people um, from a social networking website called apoe4.info um, that was started uh, several years ago by a woman named Julie. Uh, and these are people who are at risk for Alzheimer's or may already have the beginnings um, and who know that they have the most important and most common genetic risk factor, which is ApoE epsilon 4 allele. And unfortunately, about 75 million Americans have a single copy of that allele, and about 7 million Americans have two copies, are homozygous for what we call ApoE4. And so these people are at risk. In other words, if you have zero copies, your lifetime risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, it's not zero, but it's about 9%. If you have a single copy, it is about 30% through your lifetime. And if you have two copies, it is anywhere from 50 to 90%. In other words, you are more likely to develop Alzheimer's than to escape from it during your lifetime. And so these people were looking for ways to prevent and reverse cognitive decline. And almost all of those people, they have about 2,000 people on the website, are on some version of the protocol. And then, of course, we've had hundreds of people also uh, come through, and we've trained now over 600 practitioners 
practitioners from seven different countries and all over the U.S. And there's actually another training session coming up uh, through the Institute for Functional Medicine, uh, December 2nd and 3rd in Miami. Yeah, I was going to I was going to put that up and mention that for you to, uh, later, which I'll put up on the website as well, along with the show notes. Um, it's sold out in person, by the way. Uh, so it's just uh, webcast at this point as of uh, and, and the and I guess it's so popular that the um, even the wait list is uh, full. So. Um, people are listening. <laughs> well, and for you know, for the first time, so many people, uh, both patients and physicians, have written. We've had uh, close to ten thousand emails now, um, have written and said, you know, we, we didn't know that there was something that could be done for this. Uh, so many people have written amazing stories about what's actually happened to them uh, and improvements that they their doctor told them had not been possible. And so again, you know, we didn't come at this with a preconceived notion. We, if anything, we thought that we would get a drug that would have an impact on, on this illness. And what we found is that, in fact, it is more complicated than that. Um, in fact, this is a complex chronic illness. And, you know, you think about it, um, it even took three drugs to have an impact on HIV, which is a simple little retrovirus. And Alzheimer's is much more complicated. These complex chronic illnesses are not like the infectious illnesses that we were dying from 100 years ago, where you could target with a single antibiotic. So we've identified, we initially identified 36 different contri potential contributors. And of course, each person has a different profile. So the approach is a programmatic and personalized one. But you have to determine, you know, who's got which pathogen, do you have a decrease in specific trophic support? One of the most common contributors, as you know, is insulin resistance. And uh, we call this type 1.5 because it has both the inflammatory component from things like the advanced glycation end products, and it has the atrophic component, which is the type 2, and that's from the change in signaling that you get when you expose the neurons to, to insulin. So you now actually have decreased your response to insulin, which is such an important trophic factor for your neurons. And then you need to know, you know, have you been exposed to specific toxins? And as you know, most of us don't realize that we have these various exposures until we actually look for them. So what happens, you go into your doctor and your doctor says, oh, you have Alzheimer's disease. And you say, well, oh, what caused that? And the doctor says, we don't know. It's Alzheimer's disease. And this is a little bit like taking your car in to a mechanic and saying, you know, what's wrong? It's not working well. And they say, oh, this, we recognize this very well. This is called car not working syndrome. And you say, well, wait a minute. I mean, aren't you going to check the gas, the oil, the transmission fluid, the brake pads? All no, no, we, we've seen this many times. We don't check these things because they're not reimbursed. So we're just going to tell you it's car not working syndrome. It, your car's going to die. And this is the approach that we're actually being told by physicians with respect to Alzheimer's disease. You know, Alzheimer's disease, the name means nothing. It doesn't tell you what's actually causing it. So you need to look. You need to look at these larger data sets. Uh, and we often say that, you know, there's a huge complexity gap. Think about this. We've, you know, we've developed computer-based flying of airplanes, driving of driverless cars. Of course, computer algorithms help with improved advertising. Why are we not doing the same sort of thing for improving the diagnostics and therapeutics for complex chronic illnesses? And that is the basis of 21st century. And unfortunately, most places you go today are practicing 
20th century medicine, where you're looking for a monotherapy for these complex chronic illnesses. And as you know, it just doesn't work very well. Well, what I always say in, in pretty much every podcast is, as a, as a patient myself, I'm always looking for every edge I can get. And as someone who's uh, lost my father, my sister now, and, and a lot of other people I care about, you know, when you're a patient, you want every edge you can get. And that's, that's what I think you're, you're, you're looking at. And it's, you know, sometimes I say, if, if you don't change certain things like nutrition or stress, you know, you can take all the drugs you want, but it's basically peeing in the wind. Um, Or Sisyphean maybe is a better way of, of, of putting it. What I, what what I'd love to do is, um, and, and maybe I just work better with stories, but is, is go through two uh, patient scenarios, the first one being less of a patient, but a potential patient. And the second one being an actual patient and use that as the framework for understanding, uh, you know, your, how, how your book flows, how you practice medicine and what you're teaching practitioners, uh, to then go out and practice on their own. Sure, sound? Absolutely. So, so let's, let's start with someone on the threshold, um, of, of a cognoscopy, which would be a, you know, a 45 year old male, um, uh, comes to you is just generally concerned family history, but, uh, you know, um, and is concerned. And so could you walk us through, uh, you, you know, two, may, maybe two versions of that, right? So the intro, and then one is you get kind of a slightly negative one. And the other one is, you know, generally fine. How would you follow up with that person? So let's start, start with kind of the testing you do and then what you would, um, and, and he's generally fine, what you would do. And then we can go into, no, he's not generally fine. There's some symptoms, how you would approach that. That's a good point. So, you know, what you're describing is the future. As I said in the book, everybody who is 45 years or older um, should consider having a cognoscopy. And I coined that term because it's easy to remember that uh, when you turn 50, you get a colonoscopy. And so, you know, when you turn 45 or if you're over 45, you should certainly consider getting your brain checked out. Um, And the good news is there are many tests now that can be done fairly easily, simple blood tests to determine, are you at risk? Are you already going down the pathway? And again, uh, this goes on for many years before there's any diagnosis. So you want to look at, number one, you want to look, do I have anything that is causing the chronic inflammation that would make my brain respond with an amyloidogenic response? So, for example, look at your HSCRP. Is it over 0.9? You want to know, Do you you may want to know about your interleukin-6 or TNF-alpha, but certainly you absolutely want to know your your HSCRP. Also helpful to know your uh, albumin to globulin ratio. So, do you have an ongoing inflammation? If so, is it because you have a chronic pathogen? Do you have various viruses? Do you have spirochetes? Do you have fungi? Um, Your body actually fights these things for years and years and years. And if that's what you're in the middle of doing, it's helpful to know so that you can improve your immune status and reduce the overall inflammation. And there's actually, as you know, some uh, resolving mediators that you can now take to help resolve for the first piece of this. Um, and then we tend to think in the long run more of anti-inflammatories. But again, take a step back. It's not just about an anti-inflammatory. It's knowing what's actually causing the inflammation that is getting, you know, that is causing the problem. It's not just about suppressing the inflammation. And then secondly, 
you would want to know what is my status with respect to insulin resistance. Um, you want to have a, a fasting insulin done, and you'd like to see your fasting insulin be 4.5 or lower. A lot of people are walking around with fasting insulins of 10, 15, 20. Um, we've seen, seen them even up into the 30s and 40s. And what this means is that although you might feel okay, your body is working very, very hard to keep your glucose under control. You have insulin resistance. And before it contributes to cognitive decline, you want to address that and restore your insulin sensitivity. And that's absolutely possible and something that's happening every day. And again, I go through all the ways to do this in the book. And others, of course, uh, have described this sort of thing uh, previously, people who are working on things other than cognitive decline. So very important to know that. Helpful also to complement that with hemoglobin A1C, of course, and fasting blood sugar. All of those are helpful. Um, and as you probably know, neural exosomes are just appearing, and they should actually be available this year. Um, this is going to change everything because this gives you a way to look at your ongoing brain chemistry with a blood sample. You have about 1.2 billion of these tiny exosomes. They are about 170th the diameter of one red blood cell. So tiny little fragments, and there is actually a bi-directional transfer. They come out of your brain, they go back into your brain, um, and you have them from multiple organs. But it turns out about 10% of these come from your brain. And so you can actually isolate those away. And then and Professor Ed Getzel at UCSF and the NIH has done this successfully. And you can look at whether there is insulin resistance in your brain, whether there is enough trophic support in your brain, whether you have increased amyloid in your brain. Same for tau and things like that. So this will be very, very helpful and again should be available this year. And then you want to know uh, what is my status with respect to trophic support for my brain? And especially, have I had any rapid changes recently? So that's where you want to understand what is your vitamin D level? What is your estradiol? What is your pregnenolone, testosterone, uh, progesterone? Uh, all of these things, uh, free T3, free T4, reverse T3, these things all contribute to the support of your neural network. And uh, if you look, when we, when we were looking at the molecular biology underlying Alzheimer's disease over the years, the interesting uh, surprise to us was that amyloid precursor protein, the APP, and it all comes back to the, the basic science here, um, this actually serves a little bit like uh, CFO. So it actually looks at all the different things coming in and all the different things going out. And if you are in the red, if you do not have the support for your neural network, it participates in the downsizing of the network. So you want to know that you have enough support. And again, many people walking around with suboptimal thyroid function, suboptimal vitamin D levels, suboptimal testosterone function, suboptimal estradiol, progesterone, just go right down the list there. And again, supporting these, optimizing these. And as you know from your background with functional medicine physicians, um, and the and some of the other interviews that you've done, you know, you know very well, it's not good enough to be at the low end of quote normal. What we call within normal limits 
um, is really misleading and simply is two standard deviations from an average that you've taken from various patients and is it in no way related to what is optimal. So that gives you then the idea of, you know, am I uh, suboptimal in things that could contribute to giving me type 2 cognitive decline and ultimately Alzheimer's? And then you want to know what is my exposure to toxins? And there are many of us who are exposed, and as you know, just, just living in our society, we're exposed to hundreds and hundreds of toxins. And I have to say that when we started this, you know, as a scientist, I was very skeptical that toxins would have anything to do with Alzheimer's disease. Um, I thought we were going to identify, you know, one specific cause for everybody, and that turned out to be completely wrong. There are multiple contributors, dozens and dozens of them, and you need to look at them. So if you have a high copper to zinc ratio, then in fact your amyloid binds up that copper, and so it's a protectant. If you have high exposure to mercury, whether it's inorganic mercury or organic mercury, you want to know that. And again, until you start having some cognitive decline, you won't know that you are being exposed to this. So it's good to find out ahead of time. Then what about mycotoxins? Um, one of the big changes has been that we that there are mycotoxins, and of course, uh, Dr. Richie Shoemaker has spent uh, much of his career evaluating these mycotoxins and looking at mycotoxin-related illness, what he has dubbed chronic inflammatory response syndrome, or SIRS. And I have been very surprised to see how many people, in fact, have exposure to these biotoxins. So we want to look at all these things. Currently, we have a computer-based algorithm where we look at 150 uh, different things and generate what we call recode report for reversal of cognitive decline. That tells you what subtypes am I at risk for because many people will have a little bit of type 1, some of type 2, for example. They're often not pure. And then it will also generate an initial program. And of course, the final decisions are up to you and your physician. But this will generate an initial one a place to start the discussion. So as you said, let's take two different examples. First example, everything's perfect. First of all, that's very rare. Most people we find have, if they're asymptomatic between three and five suboptimal contributors, and if they are symptomatic between 10 and 25 different suboptimal numbers. So you want to know where you stand. If everything really is perfect, then you want, you want to check again in a year or two. And of course, if you get symptoms, you want to check as early as possible in that time. So we usually then say, okay, you're, you're, you're doing the right thing. Check back in a year or two. That's fine. Um, if Let's take this a situation where there are several abnormalities, and this is the much more common one. So, for example, we often find that people have a, uh, an insulin resistance. So, someone comes back with a fasting insulin of 10. They come back with a homocysteine of 12, for example. Um, again, you wouldn't know this walking around, but these increased, uh, for example, the increased homocysteine is associated with a more rapid uh, brain atrophy as you age. So we want to bring these back into being in, a in, in an optimal range from the suboptimal range. And there are straightforward programs, which is why this overall is a personalized programmatic approach. 21st century medicine is not monotherapeutic. It is programmatic. And as you know, the fundamental change is from the diagnosis, which is what is it, doesn't tell you why, 
to why. We're going from the what of the 20th century to the why of the 21st century. We want to know what contributes. So the scenario when there are some abnormalities, then we set up a program that is optimal for that person. And then you want to check back in six months, get rechecked, because as the metabolism goes, so goes the cognition. Hmm. Okay. Wow. All okay. Right. So wow. All right. So, if someone who's asymptomatic is is going to get um, retested, you're saying every year, even if you're 45 and you're, you know, you got three to if, five. If things. everything's perfect, you want to go one to two years. So yeah, there's no problem with waiting a couple of years. Is again, as long as you don't have further symptoms. You want to look at that. If you have abnormalities, you want to fix those and get rechecked in about six months. And and how how does someone go about getting all of the relevant tests without a lot of brain damage? Oh yeah, <laughs> trying to find them all and put it it's all. It's actually together. simple. You you don't have to have suffer any brain damage at all. Um, as I say, we we've trained now over six hundred practitioners. By the end of next year, we will have trained over two thousand practitioners. Uh, from all around the world and all over the U.S. Uh, and so you can simply, uh, you can go on the website, um, drbredison.com, um, and that will li- link you up with a person who's actually doing this and who's been trained. Um, you can also, of course, uh, come to the training if you're interested in doing that. Um, we're also now starting, uh, we just actually, uh, a week ago, um, started a town hall meetings for people to ask questions uh, and to and to make sure that people are kind of up to date on you know what are the things what are the optimal things to check to to be able to have the optimal outcome to to prevent cognitive decline or if you've already down, started down it of course um, to reverse the cognitive decline. All right, and and from what I've you know from what I've read and listened to your other uh, interviews. Um, you know, someone who is 45, just but before we move on to the other person who's a more serious case, someone who's 45, who may even have three to five things, you're, you're telling them, you know, start watching these things and then come back and get retested. Um, and, uh, it, 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 you know, my dad used to joke, um, without using the actual curse words, cause he was, he was not a guy that cursed a lot or anything, but he started joking. He's gotta be 25 years ago. He he said, you know, for years my problem was CRS, which is can't remember shit. Um, and then he said, I think I've now moved on to craft disease, which is can't remember an effing thing. Um, and it was a joke. It was like, you know, today it's a concussion here, concussion there with sports. But back then it was you got yeah. your bell rung. Um, and, you know, because no one had any answers or knew any, you know, knew any better. But now now here we are with something. Um, that that people can now actively pursue uh, to make sure they never deal, and it, it's it's a total change in mindset. Um, Absolutely, but uh, but I'm I'm all in favor personally, and I'm I'm going to do it. I, I'm going to go through the whole thing uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks. I need to find someone local, um, but I'm going to. So I'll I'll put those results up when I get them, um, and then I, so I'd love to go on to. Uh, so the first was a 45-year-old male. So, so to be democratic, we'll go to a 60-year-old female um, and uh, showing material signs of cognitive decline, not yet. Um, you, know, you tell me what's a better example that, that flexes your program, uh, but either further along, less further along, but definitely showing material signs of cognitive decline. 
and that person comes to you as their doctor, what do you, you know, what, what would you do if they were your patient? Yeah, very good point. And, you know, just to finish up the previous discussion, um, one of the exciting things that I've been hearing from the various physicians is that they're now seeing because of what we've published and because of the ability now to reverse the decline, where they're seeing more people come in and say, you know, I just want to be on prevention. My, you know, my mother or father or both died with dementia and I'd like to get on prevention now. And you know, this is the way of the future. And we, this is the way that we will reduce the global burden of dementia, which is a huge, a trillion dollar global problem. Now, you, you brought up the 60-something-year-old woman, and this is a very, very common presentation. And uh, interestingly, as I mentioned in the book, when the symptoms have started in the 40s or 50s, and as you said, if it's 60 and it's been going for a few years, this person would certainly fall into that group, it is more likely, much more likely, to be type 3, the toxin-related. We see this a lot. And it it looks as if, and we don't know the, the final answer to this, but the current suggestion is that when you are young, you are actually storing these toxins, be they mercury or organic toxins or biotoxins. You are storing these, you are sequestering these in your bones. So as you hit menopause, you begin now to have more osteoclastic related to osteoblastic activity. In other words, more of the loss of bone. And that's, of course, what ultimately can lead to osteoporosis. But long before you have osteoporosis, you are still releasing things from your bones. And so that gives you the exposure and you now proceed down this cognitive decline, which turns out to be mostly type 3. So on the other hand, the people who are in their late 60s, uh, when they start, are more likely to be the inflammatory non-type 3, so the type 1s. And on the other hand, the ones that are starting in their 70s and 80s are more likely to be the atrophic, the type 2s. Now, again, it's not 100-0, but that's a general rule. So if the person comes in and, and they are 60 and they've already had some problems over the last few years, and I'll give you an example of one person. Actually, this was a person that's... Um, uh, been on a CBN interview and has has done extremely well. And this is a person who who did start in her fifties and came in in her sixties, uh, and uh, uh, clearly had difficulty with memory. Clearly had difficulty also uh, with uh, no, so called non amnestic things, so so called cortical symptoms. Difficulty with calculation sometimes, difficulty with organization, so-called executive dysfunction, one of the most common non-amnestic problems, difficulty with visual perception some of these people have, some of these people have difficulty with word finding, so an aphasia. And there are well-recognized presentations for Alzheimer's disease, one so-called primary progressive aphasia, someone presenting with aphasia, posterior cortical atrophy, presenting with problems with things like perceptual, uh, visual perception, and things like that. So we would want to look at this particular person again and look at all the different potential contributors. The most important thing about all this is not the 
the program. It's the evaluation. It's the determining for the first time why people are actually getting Alzheimer's. And when we do that, it's just shocking to see how much of this is out there, how much exposure to these biotoxins, how much exposure to chronic microbes and chronic pathogens, how much insulin resistance is out there, how much chronic inflammatory response is out there. And people you know, end up going on. So her, for your the, the w- woman that you mentioned here, uh, let's talk about uh, Sally for a minute. Um, she came in and, and had a MOCA of 24. Um, she had an amyloid scan in her brain showing that she already had amyloid in her brain. So she actually went on uh, one of the drug trials for Alzheimer's. And interestingly, each time she would get the injection, she would get much worse. And what that turned out to be due to, and we've seen this a number of times now, now is because, again, you are making this, as she was, as a response to being exposed to, in this case, biotoxins. And so you, when you reduce the amyloid, you're reducing your protection. And she would get much worse. So after three injections, she said, this is making me much worse, not better. I've got to get off this. She did get off it. And then over the next year and a half, she went on a protocol. Um, she increased her score from 24 to 30. 30 is a perfect score. Um, she noticed huge uh, improvements. Her husband noticed a huge improvement. Uh, and she remains on the protocol. And one of the most important things about everything here is that people who improve stay improved. As long as you stay on the protocol, you sustain the improvement. So you really do address the underlying pathophysiology. We've had a number of people who will go off and on and off and on. When they go off, they get worse, typically within 10 days to two weeks. When they go back on, they get better again. And so there is a, there is a temporal link uh, to improvement. Now, this particular woman turned out to have a very high C4A, and that is, as you know, it tells you that you have an ongoing activation of your innate immune system. One of the simple ways to think about what Alzheimer's actually is, is to understand that the amyloid that you make is in addition to being a protective response, is part of the innate immune system. So you're simply saying, I have activated the innate immune system, which, as you know, is the older part, uh, evolutionarily older part of the immune system. This thing should then be deactivated when you deal with the pathogens appropriately. You've got your adaptive immune system, which is the newer part, which then kills the the various pathogens you dispose of them you you know you resolve the inflammation you're back to where you should be the problem with alzheimer's is that you have a chronic activation of this innate immune system just as you do with sirs that dr shoemaker has written so uh, eloquently about uh, uh, over the years so it is actually a cousin it's related to what he has described and so in this particular person that was shut down her c4a went from uh, from thousands, and it should not be more than 2380, she came down to below 1000. Um, so, so marked improvement in her uh, biomarkers, uh, along with a marked improvement in her cognition, both on the memory side and on the non-amnestic side. She's able to plan things better. She's able to do word finding better. She's able to do calculations better. Um, and again, she scored perfectly um, on her follow-up MOCA. And so 
But when she, so she comes, so I'm, I assume you get a lot of people that are kind of giving up as opposed to, you know, I'm sure it's tipping now, but historically it was people kind of giving up and looking for help. I'm, I'm guessing and that it's tipping now towards as your name gets out and as the book gets out and as you're, you know, as you're, um, as things get out there about your work that, that you won't get the second or third shot at them, but you know, so she comes to you, she's going to get the, this set of tests that you delineate in your book. Um, and, um, you know, maybe I can, um, uh, get you to create some kind of PDF, uh, that, that, um, people can use, um, make it a little easier. Um, but they come to you and they're going to get this battery of tests that you mentioned. It looks and you put it through your software, correct? And then you are going to um, come up with a first plan. Well, first thing is it tells you what subtypes. So she actually ended up having uh, mostly type 3 with a small component of type 2 and a smaller component of type 1 and 1.5. So she was a mostly toxic, as we call type 3 or toxic or, quote, vile uh, Alzheimer's disease as opposed to inflammatory or hot or atrophic or cold um, and you mentioned about a PDF. So a number of people have said, um, it, you know, you need to get something out that is a simpler version of this because the book goes into detail about, you know, how we develop this, et cetera. So I am working on a follow-up uh, book that will basically be more of a manual, a handbook. Um, uh, however, if you want something quick now, if you go to the end of chapter seven and the end of chapter eight, we have some summaries of the evaluation and then the uh, personalized approach. Yep, I'm staring at it right now, and it's great. Um, so that's on page 167, and I'm not going to spend any more time looking at the other one. <laughs> Here's a one, 203, 203. Um, anyway, um, so then she goes on the protocol for how, in, in a case of someone who's showing decline, how often are they checking Right, so in? if you've shown decline, what we typically see is we tell people, get on the program. It's going to take a few months to optimize the various things. And then, you know, don't, don't expect results before three to six months after you've gotten on the program and really done the majority of it because it takes some time to get your the nutritional piece correct to get the exercise piece correct to optimize the various so-called neuroceuticals um, that are actually being used so the various things you know you are literally changing uh, the course of something that's been going on often for a decade or more by the time you're having these symptoms so you know it takes a few months and and you want to check in the first couple times you want to check in monthly and then you can it, it you know as you get better you can make it quarterly then you can make it you know semi-annually you can go out to annually and then even a couple of years out once things are going very very well and do you so you look for 150 things and um and obviously that's more expensive. Once you're nailing these things or eliminating certain risk factors, does this set of tests oh, start shrinking? Yeah. And I should say, or when I say 150 things, some of these are historical things. You want to know, uh, you know, critical things like, you know, did you have difficulty with organizing? Uh, if you've had difficulty with, with non-amnestic pieces, that tips you toward looking harder looking more deeply for whether there is toxic exposure because that is a common uh, concomitant um, of the exposure. Uh, So not all of these are blood tests, 
Um, and we're looking at you know more and more of these things to be able to be reimbursable to make this easier and easier um, and less and less expensive. And yes, of course. Well, you're, you said, you're, you know, once you know, um, then absolutely, you know, if your main problem uh, turns out to be a, a couple of simple things, uh, as an example, we had a guy who, who came through a few years ago, who, by the way, has done extremely well. Um, and he actually had 23 different suboptimal things. But as you know, as we started to optimize these things, you know, he could get a blood test for three or four or five things that were still suboptimal. And he's really come into line and done extremely well. So what, you know, I, it, when, when I first saw you present back in February, you had videos okay. of people uh, as they went downhill over near the bottom. And then as they improved, it was amazing to me. Um, and, and, you know, that seeing the patients marveling at their own improvement because they were given, you know, kind of a death sentence or, or is certainly yeah, that's it. Got, won't even remember the last parts of their life, let alone the death sentence. Yeah, that's part. absolutely true. And, and I described some of these people uh, in the book. And actually, there's uh, in one of them actually wrote a beautiful uh, you know, couple of pages about what it feels like to be descending into dementia. This is the woman I called Eleanor in the book. Uh, and she's doing, by the way, extremely well currently. Uh, and has now been uh, almost two years now on the protocol. Uh, and, you know, she was very sharp about her own observations and she could see what she was losing and noticed that she, you know, she couldn't do certain things. Although interestingly, she said, you know, you begin to lose insight. So she said she didn't realize how much she had lost until she got it back. And actually, she went in, she went to a major university on the East Coast, both before and after, um, and the, to document uh, her own clear improvement on her testing scores that go along very well. A lot of people have said, you know, is this just all placebo effect? Um, and the documentation shows that this is not just a placebo effect. These are people who have documented improvements um, in things like their hippocampal volumes on MRI uh, and on their own quantitative neuropsych testing. Um, so this is not just quote in their mind. Um, this is uh, you know this is truly anatomically and chemically in their brains. Hmm. Well, there is some value either way, even to some of that. Um because if people believe they relax, if they relax, they probably are breathing better and getting more oxygen and they're parasympathetic. So, so, so what are the main things that you would recommend that you talk about in your book? So, um, but from sleep to stress reduction, the things that, that you think can have a profound impact that are relatively easy, uh, well, relatively simple. I won't say easy because doing anything on a regular basis isn't easy. Yeah, you're right. Um, Behavioral change is not easy. Um, and so, and again, I, I really recommend um, not to treat blindly. Um, the whole key here is you want to know what is causing your cognitive decline or your risk for cognitive decline. So you want to address those things. And yes, um, if you have insulin resistance, which so many people do have, 
then you want to include a whole program to address that. You do want to make sure to optimize your exercise, and you want to include both strength training and cardiovascular. You want to include stress reduction. And as you know, um, it's been surprising. Again, as a scientist, I never thought that meditation, things like TM, were going to have a major impact on health. But the data are irrefutable. You know, it improves plasticity. It improves blood pressure. It improves cardiovascular status. It improves cognition. You just can't deny the data that are coming out. As you know, now even uh, things appearing on improving telomere length. So uh, you shouldn't leave that out. You know, that is an important piece. You want to have the stress reduction. And no question, sleep is one of the most common problems. It's a real badge of honor. Um, when I was an intern and resident in medicine and then neurology, uh, you know, it was a badge of, of, of honor. You know, I stayed up all night to take care of this or take care of that. And we stayed up all night, you know, all the time. Um, this is the worst thing you can do. It, it increases your amyloid burden. Uh, it, it decreases your ability to clear it. It decreases your ability of your brain to get rid of damaged proteins and things like that. Um, it increases um, things like your norepinephrine. So, you know, it's, it's one of the worst things you can do for yourself and one of the best things you can do to improve cognition. Um, and then, of course, um, the whole approach to nutrition has turned out to be extremely important. Um, and in the book, um, you'll see the so-called KetoFlex. And actually, uh, my wife, Dr. Aida Lachine Bredesen, uh, did a tremendous amount of beautiful work along with uh, Julie G, who started the, the APOE4.info website on developing uh, the KetoFlex 12.3, the, the, what they call the nutritional guide. Um, this is a, a largely plant-based uh, but flexitarian um, way to drive yourself into mild ketosis, which turns out to be best for cognition. And many people, as they drive their, themselves into mild ketosis, and when I say mild ketosis, we're talking about 0.4 millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate up to about 4 millimolar. Um, and this turns out to be very good for cognition. And people notice the difference um, when you are insulin resistant um, and you are not driving yourself into mild ketosis, you don't think as clearly. Your cognition is not as good. So that's an important one. And certainly MCT oil, as you know, many, many people have been using MCT oil, um, which again helps you to get into ketosis and helps to provide fuel. And then, of course, healing a leaky gut so incredibly common for people to be walking around with leaky gut, not knowing it until they find out that they have a chronic inflammatory state. Um, so this is, again, damaging and another thing uh, to heal. So all of these things are critical pieces. You know, is your magnesium optimized? Magnesium, absolutely critical for cognition. And in fact, magnesium 3 and 8 has been used as a monotherapy with some modest but significant effects on cognition. So again, looking at all these different variables and then optimizing them gives you the best outcome. And I, I, I have to ask this one, this leaky gut question. Um, other than taking out the glutens and probably the, a lot of the different lectins, what, what are the other things you can do, you know, just kind of baseline to help leaky gut? Oh, there's gut? actually a tremendous amount that can be done, actually. So, again, first thing you want to know is do you have one? Um, and uh, we, some people use uh, Cyrex Array 2 to determine that. But then you want to know what is causing it. 
And for that, you can use Cyrex Array uh, 3 and 4 as an example. Do you have gluten sensitivity? As you know, there are many things that contribute to leaky gut from alcohol to sugar to stress uh, to, you know, soft drinks uh, to, uh, you know, to do gluten uh, sensitivity to non-gluten sensitivity, things like other uh, grains and things like that. So you first want to know what is causing your leaky gut. And then, of course, you want to stay away from those things that in your case are contributing. And then, of course, you want to heal it up. And whether you use things like slippery elm or things like um, colostrum or things like bone broth, and they each have their own positives and negatives. As you know, one of the complaints recently about bone broth is some of these you're leaching things like metals and things out of the bones. So you want to know that it's good bone broth. But there are different ways to do this and different people like to use different approaches. However you do it, you want to get to a state of a healed gut and you want to get a state of avoiding the things that were causing that leakiness. And then again, resolving the ongoing systemic inflammation and then preventing future inflammation. And as you know, this is now being implicated in Parkinson's disease, in multiple sclerosis, in, of course, IBS and things like that, in Alzheimer's disease, and a host of other inflammatory conditions. I think of these, and I've talked to Terry Walls about this sort of thing, um, you know, MS and Alzheimer's are, are essentially cousins. And in fact, Dr. Alexei Karakin, who's a, uh, who is a connectomics expert and has uh, written papers with me on this area, pointed out to me a number of years ago, you know, when you look at the connectomics of Alzheimer's, it's actually quite similar to the connectomics of multiple sclerosis. And I said, no, nah, these things can't be related. They're, one's young, one's older. No, in fact, they are related. And so I, I think of these as, quote, deflammatory diseases. They both have a degenerative component, which we think of more in Alzheimer's, but it's also there in MS. And then they both have an inflammatory component, which, of course, we think of more in MS and less in Alzheimer's. But they both have both components. And you need to identify the causes. And of course, uh, Dr. Walls has had tremendous uh, success with her approach to multiple sclerosis. So we think of these things as, as diseases that have both an inflammatory and a degenerative component. And um, on, the, on the patients you get, in terms of, you know, is there anyone where even far along where you can't stop the decline? Have you ever seen it fail to stop a decline? So you bring decline? up a really good point, which is at what point is this not helpful anymore? And of course, patients are told all the time, oh, it's hopeless, there's nothing you can do. You know, we know this disease, it's called Alzheimer's, and you know, you're going to die. Um, and, you know, in fact, that that's turning out to be incorrect. Um, there are, you know, many, many people now who are getting better. Having said that, there are mentioned, and I, so I mentioned these in the book, there are several points to make here. The earlier, the better. Preferably, as you said earlier, get on prevention. But if you don't get on prevention, as soon as you have symptoms, please do not wait. Get in there, get it checked out, and get on a reversal program. The later, the harder, and the less common. Not every single person responds. The most common reason for non-response is not doing the program. And this is no different than what Dr. Dean Ornish described years ago with cardiovascular disease. If you don't do the program, you don't get better. The more of the program you, know, you do for his program, the more cardiovascular disease gets better. We see the exact same thing. 
Having said that, we have seen people. There's a woman who had a MOCA score of zero, and the average for all Alzheimer's patients is 16.2. So in fact, this person had very, very severe and late stage Alzheimer's, couldn't dress herself, couldn't really speak other than an occasional yes and no, um, you know, could not uh, interact with her husband much, um, had lost the ability to ride her bicycle, things like that. So it just was really not able to do much of anything. She has come back beautifully. And I, I have to say, I, I did not think we would see improvement in her. Um, and we recommended against going on a program, but her husband said, no, I want to give this a try. And they've done remarkably well. Um, she dresses herself. She speaks. She speaks in full sentences, interacts with her husband very well. Um, she dances with her husband again. She rides her bike again. Um, however, she hasn't come back to, to, to normal. So the farther along you are, the harder it is to get back. And one of the things that we're interested in now from the research perspective, how can we make it? How can we continue to look for what it will be that take the people who are late stage and make them better and better and better. We can improve them somewhat, but can we get them even farther back? Will things like stem cells be added? Will that be the critical piece to restore lost neurons, lost synapses, and things like that? We don't know yet, but clearly what we want to do is all these other therapeutics on the background, whether you're testing a new drug or what have you, you want to do it on the backbone of an optimized overall program. Well, you actually just took my next question, which is, you know, where are the next areas of research that, that you're focused on? Which I guess stem cells or where else? Because I know I, I've talked to several stem cell scientists who say, you know, a lot of it is still years away. So what 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 are you seeing? I mean, when I think of a platform like what you're creating, which is how to approach a disease, all the things to look at, you're, and then you still are a researcher and scientist and go to conferences. I assume you're still talking to other people who may have pieces uh, to add, almost like you know, an open software platform, an open API, as we call it, that you can plug into. Or other than stem cells, is there anything that you're particularly focused on? Because it sounds like it's not a lot of the drugs. Well, out you know, there so right there's now. a tremendous amount, and, and so there's there's actually too much to be focused on. Yes, stem cells have the potential, at least, to bring back some of the lost cells, to bring back uh, the some of the lost synapses, and and also, as you know, they provide their own trophic support for other cells locally. So they will be very important. And yes, some of the stuff is years away. But as you know, there are already ongoing stem cell trials for Alzheimer's disease. So certainly some is here already. The second thing we're focused on is how do we optimize the data sets? Um, you know, look, looking at 150 different things um, in the long run is a tiny, tiny, tiny number. So, you know, whole genomes, uh, metabolomes, lipidomes, proteomes, microbiomes, these are all things that need to be optimized. Having larger data sets, that is 21st century medicine. That's the way things are going. And then, of course, uh, adapting this to Parkinson's, to Lewy body, to Lou Gehrig's disease. So we've already had the first few uh, cases for, uh, for Parkinson's, for Lewy body, for uh, ALS. And the question is, how do we adapt this approach to look at the critical variables for other neurodegenerative illnesses? And it, it, will programmatics be the best way to go after these other illnesses as well? And then, as you said, looking at how do you test drugs? Part of the problem, and I mentioned this in the book, um, as you know, that 
When you're asking a drug to help someone with Alzheimer's, you're asking that drug to do about a hundred different things. You're asking it to optimize your chronic inflammatory state and to deal with toxins. You know, a drug, a single drug is just not set up optimally to do that. So a drug, we always tell the patients, you know, they want to cover 36 holes in your roof. Covering one hole is not going to help you that much. So the drug is a fantastic approach for one hole. So you want to then add the program for the other 35 or so holes so that you can get a better effect of the drug. And so my hope is that in the future, we will be testing all of these drugs on the backbones of the optimized uh, programs. Um, and again, much more interaction with Silicon Valley so that we look at much larger data sets and make this, you know, in fact, again, we take it for granted that uh, we are using complex algorithms for things like uh, flying our airplanes. Why are we not doing that every day and having uh, optimal expert programs to work with our practitioners? Clearly, that's the way of the future. Yeah. This has been amazing. I actually could go on with about 50 other questions, but in, in respect for your time and, and hoping to keep listeners, um, what I'm going to do is put all the names you mentioned down in the notes, a link to your website, which is drbredison, drbredison.com, um, a link to your book on Amazon, and I should probably do Barnes & Noble to be fair. Um and uh, I'm going to put up links to some of your either YouTube or other presentations, as well as podcasts. Um, you've done several others uh, that I thought were very good that got into more of the fundamentals of the disease. And I just, you know, I chose to uh, what I'm doing right now, which is referring to those um, instead of repeating them, um, since you already did that. Um and then, um, you know, you have, as you mentioned in, in the middle, started a company so that you can, can really roll this out uh, in a professional manner, which, which I think is just fantastic. Um, it, you know, as I said to you, as I said to my own GI, uh, you know, I said your, your problem is that you acutely treat a chronic disease instead of chronically treating an acute disease. And you can't take for granted the fact that just because the body is adaptable, that it's not acute. Right, we call it, you know, chronic because we somehow adapt, but that doesn't mean right. it's not acute. Um, and so, you're actually one of the few people out there that's really attacking this and doing that. So, I am, I am uh, thankful. I'm in awe, and um, and and uh, and and hope what you're doing very soon becomes the norm, as opposed yeah, to. Yeah, I, I look forward to the day when we're all practicing 21st century medicine. And my, my great hope is that we will reduce the global burden of dementia. This is a major, major problem, as you know. Well, I, I think, I think you're going to be, uh, you know, certainly a, a big part of the foundation. It has to happen. So, uh, and, and I think it is, it's, it started. And the great thing about the internet is that it can happen. It can start moving quickly, at least to the major medical centers. And what I'm hoping this podcast is that this reaches um, both those doctors and those either people on the boards who can have influence or people who are uh, strong-willed patients who can get their doctors to see, because a lot of doctors, I think, would love to adopt this, love to trust it, and simply just don't have the time. Um, and it's no fault of their own. It's it's absurdly busy schedules and families and lives, and, um, and it doesn't take away from anyone else. 
Uh, and that's why I think what's great about your book uh, and everything you're doing out there to promote it is giving out this information. So there's not a big um, energy, you know, headwind where it just takes so much energy to try to learn it. You've, you've simplified it. And this book I think is perfectly laid out, brilliantly laid out to, to walk someone through step-by-step. Step. So I thank you. I look forward to being in touch. And um, again, if you have any other things that you want me to link to or, and I'll forward you this before we post the notes. That's fantastic. Um, thank you so much. Thanks, David, for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, take care. Thank you.